If people had enough of the book of Leviticus yet, only three more Sundays. Um, that's what I keep telling myself. Uh, it's been going great, and we've been filled by this time. It's also like, it's out there. Um, and this Sunday, it's hard because we've been walking through so much of it, and then this Sunday we get to this point in which Leviticus 19 makes up sort of this pivotal part in the whole book. It's that the rabbis say that this command that Crystal read for us, thank you for reading today, Crystal, that you shall be holy as your Lord God is holy changes a tone. And these, these commands in 19 are ones that almost sound more similar to this. They, they in some ways encapsulate sort of the Ten Commandments. Um, if you're the type of weird Christian who's very familiar with the book of James, most of us aren't, um, there's, there's a lot of the book of James sort of stuff coming through Leviticus 19 and the ways that we should treat other people. Um, and Leviticus 19 has this sort of moral code in which it gets ramped up. But first, the story from Jesus' life, before we get to what Brian read, too, which is this, this one where they come to him and they say, how do you read the law? This happens in two, two different Gospels. Somebody will come to them and say, how do you understand the law? How do you sum up the law? Now, this is common in this time, this type of question, to ask of a rabbi or a teacher. And so it's not incidental that Jesus would ask this question of, what is your way of summing up and understanding the law? Now, most Christians know that he answers with, that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and you will love your neighbor as you love yourself. When you get into discussions about the book of Leviticus with other Christians, which, let's be honest, it doesn't happen that much, um, one of the things when you want to talk about how it relates and lives into our lives that you'll get into is that, you know, well, do you eat selfish? Do you wear clothing made of two different fabrics? Do you, so obviously none of us care what the book of Leviticus says, because none of us listen to what it prohibits, right? And yet most of us don't do that. The, if you have a Bible, it's probably footnoted that the idea of what do all the commandments hang on comes from this verse, you shall love your neighbor as you love yourself, which comes from the book of Leviticus. So that when Jesus is asked to sum up the law, he sort of goes to Leviticus himself. Now there are 600 and 13 commands, I wanted to get it right, 13, 613 commands that make up the Old Testament. There's 613 of these things that you shouldn't do. And in Luke's Gospel, when he asks us this question, he actually says that all the others hang on these two. So he's not saying that, like, all the others don't count. He's not saying that all the others don't mean anything. He's saying that if you want to look at these and sort of understand them, if you first put sort of, sort of, let's say, a peg in the wall that says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and hang the second one that says, love your neighbor as you love yourself, he's saying that everything else that's commanded in the law can hang from those two things. It's not a disregard for the law. So the story that Brian read for us from the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says repeatedly, you've heard it said, but I say unto you. Jesus here is talking about the Old Testament law at this moment, too. And he says that I've come not to uh, abolish it, but to fulfill it in that portion of the Sermon on the Mount right before then from Matthew's Gospel. And he says, you've heard it said, but I say unto you. 
Now, there's this idea that, that I think Christians have, is that Jesus goes around making the Old Testament laws easier for us. You like bacon. And Jesus says in Mark something that causes the narrator to say, and by saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. Yes. <laughs> it's a great moment for the bacon lovers and the, uh, um, those in the, in the congregation to say, Jesus goes around sort of loosening us from the law. Jesus goes around sort of taking these things down. Sabbath. Jesus heals on the Sabbath, and that causes a thing. So it seems that Jesus is telling us about the Sabbath is that the Sabbath wasn't made um, for man, but man for the Sabbath. Like that the Sabbath is meant to give life. And so Jesus walks around loosening laws on this. And so when we Christians think about the books of the Old Testament, we go, Jesus has always taken a hammer to those and making them easier for us. You've heard it said, but I say to you, always goes from easier to harder. He doesn't just go around saying all that stuff doesn't matter. If you look at these passages here in the Sermon on the Mount, it says you've heard it said that you should love your, your those close to you and to hate your enemy, but I say you love your enemy. He goes from a place of easy to a place of hard. Divorce is largely permitted in the Old Testament, and yet what he says about divorce is that, that in, in multiple places, because he raises the stakes on divorce to say that you shall not separate what God joins together. Jesus ramps up the ethical demands on different things. And so all this is to, to sort of correct these two different ideas, that, that one, we don't listen to Leviticus at all. If that were true, we wouldn't listen to Jesus when he says that you should love your neighbor as you love yourself, which comes from Leviticus 19. The other is that Jesus really just wants to take all these things apart so that we can live freer. It's not exactly true either. So what does it mean when he says to come to fulfill the law? Now Mark, when he talks about divorce, he says that this was given to you because you were hard in your heart. He almost is treating the law like, yeah, because you guys were stubborn then, God gave you an easier way with marriage. But that's not the way it's going to be now. Now it should be clear with, with marriage, I, that's a hard one. I, I wrote an article about this for our denominational magazine. There's all sorts of caveats here is that, is that abusive marriages are, are meant to be broken. One of the things that Jesus isn't doing in this context is, is, um, is humanizing women more than they were. You could just divorce a woman and say, get out um, and give her no financial support. And so he's also bringing life to them. But I don't think that's the only reason he's doing it. So there are two things worth saying here when you talk about marriage is that sometimes through abuse, sometimes through disrepair, sometimes through greater sin, those things are broken. And the second is that, that he's actually on the side of women with these arguments. And the third is that like all sins, they're meant to be forgiven. Um, no sin is meant to be bound up. And this is, this is part of my hard Presbyterian upbringing. This was not part of, I, I, is that, that, I just, the big thing they taught us about sin was that it wasn't that big of a deal. Um, uh, you just ask for God to forgive you, and that's provided. Um, and so, like, to get caught up and really worried about your sin was sort of like, you're doing it wrong. It's not supposed to be that interesting or fun. You're supposed to be able to free yourself from it relatively easy. So all that to say, the marriage part is an example for today's sermon. And if we want to talk about what healthy and good marriages mean, we'll do that at some time. 
So this brings us to Leviticus 19 today, that was, is what is Jesus doing with all these laws and with all this material and bringing it to Christians. Now, as I mentioned, Leviticus 19 forms the backbone of the book of James. But if you, if you were listening to what Crystal read for us, that starts with this, that we should be holy as our Father, is, as, as uh, our Lord God is holy, you begin to see different things play out through this text, is that the first one is to respect your mother and father. And one of the ancient rabbis, when they talk about this one, is that the family, and this is one of the things we're trying to practice and believe at Defiance Church, is the family is the discipleship maker of Christians and of faith and of life. There wasn't like this idea that like you send them off to Sunday school or you send them to school or their moral formation comes through other things, but that the family was the place where that takes place. And as God is setting up these laws for these people in this desert on their journey to the promised land, is what he's saying is that it's going to be important that you learn to honor your mother and father as they make a discipleship-making family. Now, one of the caveats here is, obviously, is if your family isn't doing that, if your family is abusive, if your family is controlling, if your family is, is not bringing you deeper into those truths, what does it mean to honor your mother and father? Good question. Leviticus doesn't answer that. But at least we can say that to the extent to which your family is trying to model those things, there's a way in which we move into that. We move into learning these things from generation to generation. And so the research that, that sort of on youth formation um, suggests that most kids who actually have a different faith that goes deeper than sort of the faith of sort of their cultural peers, um, which the phrase of the cultural peers, I just love this phrase, it's moralistic therapeutic deism. I don't want to spend time explaining that, but it's just sort of morals combined with God's there when I want a therapist and he's vague, he's not the God revealed concretely in Jesus Christ. Kids who move away from that mainly do so because of the faith that their parents modeled at home. It wasn't Sunday school, it wasn't youth groups, it wasn't sending them off to Christian schools. It was because that the rituals had taken place in the home enough that the faith was able to take root there. So kids are to honor their mother and fathers. And then it goes into idol making, which is, this is where it gets very similar to the Ten Commandments. It's almost summarized in full here. But it moves to this great care for people who are outside the covenant, um, it moves to this first idea of that when you harvest your fields, which in Deuteronomy it's, it's stated more this way, when you harvest your fields, go through once, and everything that you don't get the first time through is left for the poor. This idea in this passage is that your care for other people, whether they are poor or the alien, which is the other phrase in here, or immigrant or foreigner, all of these are meant to be the care that God represents for you. The origin of to be holy as your God is holy is to show care for what God cares for. Now, a lot of this isn't particularly unique in the ancient Near East, but the thing that is unique is that they actually ground it in God. Lots of societies had laws on treating foreigners and aliens somewhat civilly, but this one says that because God is that way, you too will be that way. Your God has this care for you. If people remember back to when we talked about the food laws six or eight weeks ago, somebody told me the great part, pastors should know that while you're saying, thinking about how bad the sermon was three weeks ago, your congregants don't even remember what it was. Um, 
this past week, which that just I just thought it was funny. Um, but uh, that we talked about how there's this ways in which a lot of the animals that they're not supposed to eat, in their minds, seem unprotected. They seem unnatural, and therefore, what they're actually being told to be is you can't exploit these animals. Fish without scales, how do they live? How do they swim? Don't eat them. Let them be. Like there's this charity involved in that. And the other thing is with predators, right? These are things that prey on other things. So don't take advantage. So don't eat them because they're predatory. They take advantage of innocent and pure things. Now in Leviticus 19, it comes out that the point of that maybe is that you too are not to be predatory. God is not making you into a predatory, stronger people or a, or a community that can take advantage of of things that aren't natural or, or are sick. So you get in Leviticus 19 these commands around the blind and the deaf. Don't make their lives harder. Don't attack them. Don't trip them. You get these worlds in which that's not the way in which we're supposed to be. And all of this is flowing out, not because this is just good, not because this makes us kind, but because God cares about those things. So you get laws about business dealings in here. You get laws about um, what to do with your neighbor. You get all sorts of things compounding in this section of Leviticus 19 that says that holiness bleeds into every sort of aspect of life. Crystal read on that sacrifice again from the, from the well-being offering. That, that every meal when you eat meat is like a sacred meal in your house, your table becomes sort of like an altar too, is the just where the rabbis, when the temple is destroyed, begin to talk about the house as a temple for families. It's there you eat the meat and you have that moment. Which is interesting to me because I was thinking about our uses of holy in the world today. I mean, we use holy for, for natural events. We use holy for sunsets occasionally. We use holy moments for when broken things are repaired sometimes. But I was thinking through all that, and really what Leviticus 19 is saying is that all the mundane has the propensity to be holy. All the ordinary every day has the ability to be holy. All of that can be infused with this way of care and of being and stewardship of honesty and who God is that actually infuses it with the holiness of life. That comes because God cares about it. Not just because you care about it, but because God cares about it as well. And so we see this play out further in this section is, is that you should, um, how you deal with others, and, and I'm trying to think about where I want to go from here. Um, there's always time in sermons. Um, uh, how much time do you spend on this? So all of life is holy through these things. There's two weird parts at the end of Leviticus 19. One is about no mixtures, which is the cloth and the animals. And it seems to say that the, the mixture of things happens at the temple. That, that the mixture is for the priests and as you get to holiness. So you don't mix things. And part of the reason that that might be is because God has separated and ordered the world in Genesis, right? And so we don't get to mix our own things. We don't get to make our own mixtures of the world, that there's a deeper sort of stream even running through that, is that you have to sort of keep the holiness involved in what you do in a way that so you don't create dysfunction in the world. 
So Leviticus 19 has this way of sort of portraying for us these ethical commands that I think lead into Jesus' life and ministry. One of the things we talked about as we've been going through this is that Jesus' body from his circumcision in Leviticus 2 is one that is marked with the book of Leviticus. He is one who lives through and through the book of Leviticus, which is why he heals, which is why he touches, which is why he lives as one full of holiness in the ordinary. That Christ here becomes this holy one who lives life in a way that's modeled and touched by the book of Leviticus. And so much so that he's the one who goes outside the camp. We talked about this last week, where that's where the godless and everything else is. It's a bad thing in the book of Leviticus. But even Christ goes there to bring life and light and to bring back the captives. As we think about that song we sang today, that the man Jesus Christ laid death in the grave, that's a good example of what it means to go outside the camp for Jesus. That is the Holy One, he goes outside the camp to the point of death. And even there, he bursts forth with life. He comes forward with the keys. I love that phrase, is that, they, that he laid death in the grave. That's so much so that even that which distorts and separates us is losing its power in the world. Christ is one who sort of models and stretches throughout the book of Leviticus. And so that's sort of where we're at with Leviticus 19 today. But I wanted to, most of the week I spent zooming in on what does it mean to be holy as God is holy? What does this command have to do with our lives in this world today? The way it's phrased in the book of Matthew that Brian read for us actually at the end of his, you've heard it said, but I say to you passages, is that you shall be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. It's hard and truth that we're called to be a people called towards holiness and towards perfection. Now the first thing to say about Jesus and Matthew saying that you're called to be perfect is not so much this um this Western idea of perfection that we have that's very static and very sort of like without flaw and such. But actually, many modern translations will actually change it to maturity. You're supposed to be mature. You're supposed to be upright. You're supposed to be faithful. You're supposed to be strong. Um, now, the Greek word is, is, is teleos, which when you think about time, um, Tilios has this way in which something is being stretched into its fulfillment. Like we are being brought to something further. We're being brought into a new age. We're being brought. And so like what it actually means is you're growing into the fullness of what you're meant to be. You're growing towards a goal. You're growing towards something. And so you are supposed to be perfect in your growth towards that goal as your heavenly father is perfect in that goal. Like radiate out from one of the things I think we live in today is what Charles Taylor calls sort of this cult of authenticity. That we're supposed to be authentic. That authenticness is the call for our life. And so we generally think of our lives pretty one-dimensional. I'm supposed to be an authentic person. Now, if authentic doesn't really mean something you look about, is, is I'm not sure that's who I am. If you've ever heard somebody use that phrase, I'm not sure I'm called to that. I would do this decision, but I'm not sure if that's really who I am deep down. Many of us have this concern about are we being the people in our truest nature that we're called to be? Sort of follow this idea of authenticity through and through. 
And what's interesting is that like a modern and a pre-modern person would have no idea what the hell you're talking about if you use the phrase like that. I'm just not sure this is who I'm meant to be. Like, well, who you're meant to be is the person who does this job and lives this life and marries this person, and that's the external standard of the world. And so most of human history, actually, you're actually being brought to external standards. How do you perform in this world of standards? It's basically like the rest of world history is the bad side of the Disney movie. Like, I don't want to be that princess. I don't want to inherit this. I don't want to do that. I don't want to just be this, which says a lot about us, um, is that we view those things primarily just as restrictive, which I think is fair. But authenticity, authenticity as in our goal, has its own faults. One, it means almost all our humor is satirically related in pointing like the distance between these two things, right? So if you watch any TV, late night TV, most of it is just satire. Because in a quest for authenticity, the gaps become the ways in which you can sort of like make humor. But the problem becomes is the gaps exist within us as well. The second thing is it makes you very, very critical of other people. What does it mean to be authentic? Seminary, we used to talk, what about somebody who's just authentically evil? Or authentically a liar? Or authentically bad? If the goal is in authenticity, if that seems true to their character, then great for them, right? They get to act out their authentic self. But what does the question mean in a larger sphere? Now, now some, some of my classmates would give me pushback on, like, well, that can't be being authentic. And I'm like, well, tell that to the liar. Tell that to the cheater. It can feel very authentic to them that this is the standard that they're called to. And so all this has this, this ability of, that we aim and work towards authenticity. And authenticity is, authenticity is primarily only judged within ourselves, which also puts us on a quest often to be cool instead of authentic anyways, which is the other challenge that comes with this. And so we have this, this authentic quest within us. What actually the difference is about this, that you shall be holy as I'm holy, or you shall be perfect as I'm perfect, is that there's actually given that second place to go. You don't have to invent yourself. What you like, which, I mean, certainly here Facebook and Instagram, when I say what you like, uh, what you like, um, what you gather yourself with, the images and the clothing and this, is the ways in which we can make ourselves in the modern world. Or we can say that we are to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. And then look at what perfection means for God. Well, in both these places where we're called to this, we're called to be just people. We're called to be concerned for the other. We're called to love our God and to love our neighbor. We're called into this place of not having idols that pull us and tell us who to be, but sort of becoming ourselves in a way that comes from God. It doesn't come from inside of us. And so we, we move actually to this place of sort of external standards. And so it, it calls us to congruence with a stronger center calls us to, to life with a stronger nature of who we know we are. It doesn't leave us to say, invent yourselves, invent your code of ethics, invent how you want to be displayed to the world, but it actually calls you to have a stronger center. And so God acted for Israel so that she would act out in the world his holiness. 
And God touches us that we might stand straight in the world. And you look to God for protection, perfection, and then Jesus in the Spirit sort of fills that place and draws you in. And so what's our goal as we become people who listen to Leviticus 19? We become people, we become people who can begin to say that what I know is true about myself doesn't only just come from inside of me, but it can come from someplace else. It can come from one who's drawn us deeply. Now one of my favorite books is titled Eccentric Existence. And eccentric begins to describe for this author the ways in which Christians, as they are known by God, have life that draws them from outside of themselves. Eccentric for him means that most of the ways in which we know ourselves as humans, in which we understand ourselves, we know ourselves from these things on the outside. And so he says, first we know that we're created by this God who's breathed life into us. And so he says that as people, we live on borrowed breath. He says that, that we are people who are going to be consummated through the work of the Spirit. And so as people, we live on borrowed time. And he says, because we are people who live as reconciled by another's death, we live by another's death. But the thing about each of these three, three things is they aren't just saying within the human self is the propensity to know themselves and to make themselves and make who they are. But each one of them requires to look to the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit in a way that gives shape and definition to our lives. It's a way that calls us out of ourselves. And so while the quest for authenticity is pretty much where we're stuck, Charles Taylor admits, it's best for us to find ways to push back on that and to let other things define us. To have this passage in Leviticus. Give us a place in the world to act out simple justice, simple concern, to have your meals be sacred sites shared together. The problem with authenticity is it makes the project of you so grand, but what if the project could of us could be simpler? What if we could have ways in which we can live in the world without having to make some sort of grand statement of who we are, but to merely respect our mother and father, to have no other gods before God, to offer sacrifices and have our meals be holy, to not reap all that we can from the world and life, but to leave some on the edges for those who are without. Sabbath, to take a break. All these things can be places that ground us deeper and make us a little less chaotic in the search for authenticity. So let us pray. God, you've called us to love you with our full selves, to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. Seems as people, we're always looking for more to do. And yet your commands and your wishes for us are simple. That we would have holy worship. That we should have holy lives in how we interact with others. But this day we ask that you come near to us. You touch our lives and bring us to a stronger place. And through your Spirit, come into our lives and to bring about the work of perfection.
For it is no longer we who live, but him who has died who lives in us. And may that fill our lives, that we may be holy as you are holy, and be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect in heaven. Amen.